have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis 46. Genesis 46. As you're finding your place in God's Word there, I want to welcome uh, our online viewers. We just talked about them, and we have many that are watching this morning uh, via our live stream, whether it be YouTube or uh, website or uh, Facebook. We're grateful for all of you that are watching online. Thank you for joining us this morning. I also want to welcome Reach Church DeSoto. Last week in, in DeSoto, we did an egg hunt on, on Saturday, and we had about 500 people from that community show up to participate in that egg hunt. It was awesome. And uh, so Reach Church, we are so excited for you. We are praying for you and the work that you're doing in that community. But thank you for your faithfulness, and thank you for joining us this morning as well. Uh, also, the venue service meeting right down the hall, so many that are down there, and we're grateful for you and grateful that we're here to worship the Lord and study his word together. Genesis 46, we, we're, we're in the home stretch. We've been in Genesis for a long time, uh, but we're in the home stretch. A little later uh, this spring into the summer, we'll, we'll go to the book of Daniel uh, we're going to do Daniel as a precursor to Revelation because Daniel really is the key to prophecy. There's so much about Revelation that you'll have trouble understanding if you don't know Daniel. So we're going to look at Daniel's 2, uh, chapter 7, 8, and 9 as a precursor, and then we'll work our way over to the book of Revelation. And I'm in incredibly excited about it. It's, uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm a little scared, all right? We're going to talk about fear this morning. Uh, but uh, it, it's a little, little scary when you start jumping into Daniel and Revelation, but um, I know the Lord will, will be faithful, and there's always a blessing. In fact, no other book records the blessing that's received in studying it than the book of Revelation, so I'm excited about it. But as we pick up here in Genesis, we've been away from it for a little while, and uh, we, we come here to Genesis 46, and Jacob is now who we've watched since birth in this book, Jacob is now 130 years old. And we've seen God do a lot of work in Jacob's life, haven't we? But guess what? God's not done with Jacob. Isn't that amazing? 130 years, and God is still working on Jacob. Listen, I, I don't care how old you are and how long you've been walking with the Lord. If you still have breath in your lungs, God is not done with you. There's new ways in which he's growing you, new, new mountains, in fact, to be climbed, new challenges to face, and sometimes things that are very frightening. You know, even Paul in Romans, he comes to the, near the end of his life, Romans 15 and 16, and he, he knows he's at the end of his life, and guess what? He's dreaming about going to Spain. He's looking at all the things that God wants to do. I don't care where you're at today, how long you've been walking with the Lord. God's not done with you. He has things that he wants to do in and through you. So here is Jacob, and God is going to bring him into a new challenge and a difficult moment. His sons, you remember his sons in chapter 45, they've now found Joseph, this long-lost brother. And they have let Jacob know, uh, your beloved son is alive. And boy, you talk about what if would have been probably a very awkward conversation <laughs> as these sons now have to tell their dad, we've been lying to you for a lot of years now and we've been trying to keep our story straight and they come clean and very awkward conversation. And in fact, Jacob, when he finds out that Joseph is alive at the end of chapter 45, he says, that's enough. I'm content. Knowing that he's alive is all I really needed. I'm ready to go on to be with the Lord. But, but God is not done with Jacob. He has more to do through him. And so now Jacob is confronted with the reality that he's got to pack up his kids, his grandkids, take everything that he has, 
and move to this very scary place called Egypt. And he is frightened. So let's read this in Genesis 46, verses 1 through 7. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. And then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask you to bless it. Lord, whatever things that are on our mind this this morning as we come to your word, I pray that you would help us to take, take every thought captive to the glory of Christ. I pray this morning that we would focus on you, we would focus on your word. And God, I pray for those that, like Jacob, are in the midst of what are very frightening circumstances, that today on the basis of your word, you would remind them that you are God and you're with them. Bless the study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Jacob here, he's called to leave everything that he's used to, everything that he's become comfortable with, even uh, the, the tomb of his, uh, the burial place of his beloved wife Rachel. Rachel buried in Bethlehem. I, I think even that probably stuck in his heart as he now knows that he's got to go down to Egypt and what an incredible move to make at, at this point in his life, 130 years old. You know, I, I don't know this exactly to be true, but I've heard that as you get older, you don't like change. <laughs> heard that that's the case. I do know this, the older I get, the, the less and less I like any idea of moving. But put yourself in, put yourself in Jacob's shoes for just a moment. Uh, I doubt any of us are going to get to 130, so let's just pretend like we're in our 70s and we're retired and you're settled down and you've got a nice little home you've lived in for a long time and you're feeling really good about life and all of a sudden God comes to you and says, all right, here's the deal. You've got to pack up everything you have. You've got to leave Kansas City and now you've got to go live in New York City. And that's about as close an analogy as I could come to. And I picked New York City for a reason. Don't read too much in this, but... But Egypt, know this, it's fearful because Egypt was an incredibly pagan land. Incredibly pagan. They worshipped all kinds of God. Everything in Egypt was contrary to what, what Jacob knew to be true about God. And that in and of itself was scary. Not only that, but, but in Egypt they, they worshipped this man named Pharaoh. And, and Jacob, he's heard stories and he knows that if Pharaoh's having a bad day... You can lose your life. He also knows that Egypt is, is massive. It's this huge place. And Jacob and his family, they're only about 70 people. So in light of this huge vastness of Egypt, he fought, probably felt very, very small. 
And on top of all this, he knows the story. You remember Abraham went down to Egypt in the midst of a similar situation, went down to Egypt, and he almost lost his life, and he almost lost his wife. Bad deal. And then he knows his, his father, Isaac, was tempted to go down to Egypt in the midst of a famine. What did God say to Isaac? Don't you dare go down to Egypt. And then on top of all this is kind of a, a mysterious prophecy that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15 when God said that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I'll also judge the nation whom they will serve and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. So you kind of got this dark, mysterious prophecy out there about being in a foreign land as strangers and being enslaved and oppressed. So you, you kind of combine all these factors together, and Jacob is scared. I would imagine everything in Jacob wanted to stay home. Amazing, 130 years old, a guy who's walked with God, a guy who's grown in his walk with God, who's been shaped by God, he's wrestled with God, his name has been changed by God, but even here, after all these years, I think if we were to ask Jacob, if he were to get gut level honest with us, he would tell us in that moment, let me tell you something, I was scared to death. And you know, sometimes as I'm studying God's word, it just seems like the timing of the passages that God puts in in front of me are providential, not just for my life, but for the life of so many people who are in our church. Because I studied this, I just so happen to know, because I've been praying with some of you and I've been talking with some of you, I just so happen to know that many of you are going through a similar circumstance to what Jacob's going through right here. You're in a situation that is incredibly frightening, and you are, in fact, today, if you were to get gut level honest with us, you're scared. I mean, listen, right now, we're, we're in the midst of a situation in our world where a lot of people are afraid of a virus. There's a fear of that out there that, in many ways, has paralyzed a lot of people. Now, on top of that, I know, because I'm praying with some of you, that, that some of you are facing some real difficulties within your marriage and if you were to be honest with us today, you would say, I'm scared. And some of you have got job situations in your life right now. You, you have no security in your job. You don't even know if you're going to have a job tomorrow morning when you go. And some of you have already lost your job and you're searching for a job. I know this because I'm praying with you. And you're not certain that there's anything out there. And you're scared. How are you going to provide for your family? Some of you, I know because I've been praying with you, you have children that have made some very poor decisions in their life. And now they find themselves in the midst of some very frightening situations. And you're fearful for them. Some of you have made your own bad decisions. And now you find yourself as a consequence of your bad decisions in a very frightening place. Some of you, it's, it's pregnancy concerns. And situations that have happened in the midst of that have brought you to a place where you're incredibly fearful about the future. And then if all those things weren't enough in the midst of our current political and social climate in our country, if you read the news or watch the news to any extent at all, if you're not at least a little scared, something's wrong with you. And a lot of times we're fearful about things that may or may not occur. I know I'm guilty of that. Sometimes we just get fearful about things that probably won't ever occur, but we get it in our mind that that might happen, then we get fearful. But a lot of times we're afraid of the things that we know will happen like death. And as a pastor, I, I uh, get to walk with families and individuals a lot of times as they walk through the latter years of the latter days of their life. And I've really found that there's like one or two directions that people go. 
either a person is almost, which I see, believe, see it correctly, but they almost just become kind of flippant about it. You know, it's kind of like, Grandpa, we found out you got stage five cancer. They're giving you about a month to live. And Grandpa says, well, shoot, what's for lunch? <laughs> you know? And it's like, all right, well, all right, we're going to go on. I'm going to be with Jesus. It's going to be just fine. But then there's other folks. They receive that same news. And they go crazy. Trying everything they can to somehow avoid the inevitability of, of death, which is the final great fear. So listen, if you're not in the midst of a fearful situation today, you probably will be at some point. And God knows. God knows we get scared. <laughs> 500 times in the Bible it mentions fear. At least 500. On 365 occasions, God says, do not be afraid. It's almost like one time for every day of the year, God wants to whisper into your ears that you don't have to be afraid. Because God knew ever since the fall, you know, a lot of people ask, where did this all begin? It began in the garden with sin. And from that point forward, we live in a very scary world. And we face some very scary situations. And the question is, how do we respond? So what I want to do is just look briefly at how Jacob responded. And most of this you probably already know. Most of this will be a blinding flash of the obvious, which is what I'm really good at. But I want us to see how did Jacob respond. And we all need to be reminded of this. Because as I said, if you're not in the midst of a fearful situation, you're getting ready to be. That's the reality of the world we live in. So how do we respond? The first thing that we see here that Jacob did, he's scared to death. But Jacob knows in the midst of these situations, when you get fearful, what do you do? You run to God. So the first thing that we see is that in verse 1, Jacob comes to Beersheba and he offers sacrifice. The, 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 the response of the believer is to worship. To worship God. So here he is at Beersheba. He comes to the southernmost part of, of Israel, you, you've probably heard the statement from Dan to Beersheba. Dan, the northernmost border of Israel, Beersheba, the southernmost border of Israel. So he comes to what is in our day the last exit before you get into Egypt. This is the last stop. It's the last place to, to hook off and turn around if you're going to before you go in. And all that's in front of them is this vast desert wasteland and a lot of scary situations. And Beersheba was incredibly special to Jacob. You remember a lot of family connotations, things that had happened at Beersheba. This is where Abraham was before he took Isaac up to sacrifice on the altar and God provided the ram in the thicket. This is where his dad Isaac was uh, when, when God spoke to him three times and confirmed the promise that God had made to him. This is the place where all the wells were. And the wells were always a sign of God's provision. This, in fact, where Jacob went through on his way to Bethel and eventually to Padam Aram. So you can imagine, here is Jacob, the last stop. He's got all these family connotations going through his head. He's scared to death. And he says, I got to worship. And he runs to God. He's, he's gripped with fear, and his fear drives him to worship. God is going to use a very fearful situation. I think Jacob had probably come to a place of complacency in his life. 
And God's going to shake him with a fearful situation so that even here at the end of Jacob's life, God can draw him close to himself. And it's a good reminder that I don't know about you, but I rarely draw close to God when everything's going really well. We rarely draw near to God in the midst of of seasons of great blessing and comfort and security. But it's in the midst of very fearful situations that we begin to run to God and grab hold of him. And as I was saying this, it it always, every time I come to something like this, when we talk about trials and fearful situations and how it draws us close to God, it always reminds me that when our boys were little, you take them to the beach. And we, we love to go to the beach and Gulf Shores, Panama City, when when we were in Alabama in the summers and the boys were little and you would take one of our sons and you just go out towards the ocean and they, they were always a little fearful of the ocean, especially when they're little, you're two or three years old, this vast ocean, these big waves and kind of grab them by the hand and you go out a little ways and then they're backing up and then they'll go a little further. But, but you just kind of keep taking them out a little further and what I always noticed is you get them out a little further, eventually they just start grabbing onto the leg, you know, you start out with the hand, then they grabbing the leg, you know. And pretty soon they've just like climbed up and they're around your waist. And then you get a little further and I just remember one of them, he just had the legs wrapped around the head and both hands over the ears. You know what I realized? The further out we got and the scarier it got, the more he clung to me. Boy, isn't that trials? The scarier it gets, the more difficult the circumstance, the more we cling to God. That is what God does in the missing trials. Will you, why do dogs have fleas? To remind them that they're dogs. <laughs> why does God give us trials? To remind us that we're about this big. And if God removes his breath, we're in big trouble, amen. It's in the midst of the storms we re- realize we're pretty weak people and we run to God and we, we grab hold of him. That God pushes us out of our comfort zones into fearful situations so that we can be drawn to himself. And so here's the, just the admonition to you, the encouragement to you today. If you're in the midst of a fearful situation, hit your knees. Get alone with God. Worship God in the study of his word in prayer. See, in the midst of these situations, we don't need answers. That's, that's normally what we begin to do is we ask God, why, why, why? Listen, we don't need answers. We need focus. We need to focus on him. As the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning to shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such hostilities against himself that you yourself will not grow weary. We need to change our focus from our fears to God As the old saying goes, we need to stop telling God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big our God is. And we run to God and we worship him. It's the essence of Philippians 4 when Paul told the Philippians in the midst of some very fearful circumstances, be anxious about nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Make your requests known to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whenever we find ourselves in fearful situations, we run to God. God's remedy for worry is worship. 
God's remedy for worry is worship. So, so Jacob worships the Lord. He offers sacrifice. He prays. See, Jacob has learned that there's no pit so deep that God's grace is not deeper still. Jacob has learned that the darkness is the shadow of God's wings. Jacob has learned that the habitat of God's presence is pain. Now, I, I've experienced a lot of joys in my life based on the blessings that God has given to me. And God has been good to me. And he's blessed me in so many ways. And I've, I've gained so much joy in that. But listen to me. I have been shaped and molded in the midst of fearful and difficult circumstances. And I would imagine just about every one of you have circumstances in your life that you would be willing to say today, I wouldn't wish those circumstances on my worst enemy. But I wouldn't trade them for anything. Because I know how God has used them to shape me into the man or woman of faith that I am today. And listen, if all God ever does is give us the blessings, you know, what do we know as parents? If all you do is coddle your kids and never make them challenged and never discipline them, if all you ever do is give them everything they want, you know what they become? Spoiled little brats. And if all God ever does is give us the blessing, you know what we become? Spoiled little brats. We become little candy-coated Christians who cave at the first sight of discipline or struggle. And God is in the business of growing us into great men or women, or women of faith, even here in Jacob's life at 130 years old. So Jacob worships. Jacob runs to God, and guess what? God is going to run to him. That's the beauty of this. When you run to God, God runs to you. And then God makes five great statements to Jacob. Let's look at them together. In verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. I love this. The first thing that God does with Jacob is he reminds him that I know you personally. He uses his name. And notice, he doesn't use the name Israel. Which name does he use? He uses the name Jacob. That's Jacob's name of weakness. That is God getting down on Jacob's level and saying, deceiver, deceiver. I know who you are, Jacob. I know all your frailties. I know all your weaknesses. I know right where you're at. It's God's way of saying, I'm in charge of the whole world, but I also know you by your name. Isn't that good news today? That God is in charge of the whole world, and yet he knows you personally and he knows where you're at and he knows what you're going through it's the essence of psalm 139 oh lord you've searched me and known me you know when i sit down and when i rise up you understand my thought from afar you scrutinize my path and my lying down you're intimately acquainted with all my ways even before a word is on my tongue behold oh lord you know it all you've enclosed me behind and before such knowledge is too wonderful for me the psalm that says, you know everything about me. And that knowledge, he says, where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I go from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. Boy, that's good news today. That God knows where you're at. You know, Corey Tinboon, when she was... Um, going through the concentration camps, the horrific circumstances of those con concentration camps. She lost her father, her older sister, 
in those camps. And she said that on one particular occasion when, when the situation was incredibly bleak and incredibly dark, they were out to call roll and there was a particular guard who was, who was making them stand out there for an incredibly long period of time and it was just a horrific circumstance. But in the midst of that, they looked up and she saw a skylark. And she was reminded of scripture that God knows her. And she said, for the next three weeks, every morning during roll call, that skylark showed up. And she said, I was convinced that God sent that skylark just for me. To remind me, Corey, I know it's dark, I know it's bleak. But I'm right there with you. I know you. I'm with you. His eye is on the sparrow. And he watches over me. He knows you personally, Jacob. And then he goes on, not only do I know you personally, but in verse 2 he says, Jacob, Jacob, I am God. I am God. He not only reminds him that I know you personally, but he reminds Jacob of his power. Does Jacob know that God is God? Yeah, he does. So why does God say it here? I think it's just an emphatic. I think it's... Jacob, Jacob, I am God. He's reminding Jacob that whatever you fear is no big deal to me. I'm bigger than what you fear the most. You know, the, the, the disciples in Mark chapter 4, a beautiful story. The disciples in Mark chapter 4, they... They have been walking with Jesus, but they've not faced any real trials. They've not been tested with any struggles. And Jesus, you'll remember, sends them out on the ocean. Intentionally sends them out on the ocean. And guess what happens? We got to test them. We got to see how they're doing. And a great storm comes up. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Because storms are no big deal to Jesus. And they go to Jesus and they wake him up. They, they scream, do you not care about us? That we're about to die. We're going under. And you remember Jesus gets up, says, hush, be still. And the winds went silent and the waves were completely calm. Meaning, you know, when things start to, when the winds die down in a normal occasion, there's still some, some ripples it means it immediately went calm. And I think the disciples, I don't know this exactly to be true, but I think they're thinking Exodus and Moses and the parting of the sea. You know, Israelites were not seafaring people. They were scared to death of the ocean. They were scared to death of the sea. It, it was their greatest fear. In fact, even in the Genesis narrative, we've seen that the chaos of the waters over the earth were a very frightening thing. And so they were scared of the sea. It's, and I think that's the reason when they're coming out of Egypt, what is the first great miracle that God performs? He parts the Red Sea as if to let them know, whatever you fear the most, I'm bigger than that. Well, right here, I think the disciples see these waters go silent and they start thinking, we got somebody bigger than Moses with us. I think it's at this moment that the disciples begin to realize we got God in the boat with us and we didn't even know it. And so guess what happens? It says... They were scared to death, but then after Jesus calms the winds and the waves, guess what it says? Now they were very much afraid, but they're no longer afraid of the winds and the waves. They're afraid of the ones who just, one who just calmed the winds and the waves. 
because they realize we got somebody bigger than the waves right here in the boat with us. Do you know this today? If you know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, you got someone bigger than the winds and the waves with you in the boat. Not just in the boat, but in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you know you got somebody who's bigger than your worst fears, who is with you, it changes everything, doesn't it? All of a sudden, those problems don't seem so big and the situations don't seem so bad when you know that you have God with you. So Jacob... I'm God. Then verse 3, I'm the God of your father. And I think what God is doing here, he's reminding Jacob of the promises that I've made. I made some great promises. I made promises to your, to your grandfather. I made promises to your father. Even here in this passage, he says to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I already told your grandfather. I told your father, I'm going to make you into a great nation, Jacob. Trust me. See, is, is it possible for Jacob to follow God down to Egypt and then all of a sudden for the nation of Israel to be wiped off the face of the earth, Jacob to die, and Israel never to be seen again. Is that possible? Biblically speaking, it is not possible. Why? Because God has made a promise that I will make you into a great nation. So although right now it seems like the circumstances are contrary to that, Jacob, you gotta trust me because I've made promises and God has made promises to us. See, the promise of, to, given to his father was, was I'm going to make you a great nation. I, I'll lead you down here to this land, but I'll bring you back up, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to bring you into the promised land. Do you know God has made promises to us as well? Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn over many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And he also glorified. Do you know what God is saying to the Romans through Paul and he's saying to us this morning? That I'm sovereign over all the circumstances of your life. And if I called you and if I saved you, then I will surely sanctify and I will surely glorify you. And when God makes a promise, you can write it down and take it to the bank. It's, it's as good as done. In fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 talks about our glorification. He says we've been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He says your eternal salvation and destination is so secure today, we can talk about it in the past tense. That's how certain God's promises are. So listen to me. If you've truly trusted in Christ and you know him as your personal Lord and Savior, it's not like you're going to get up to heaven one day and God's going to be calling roll and you're not going to be there. Because as Jesus said in John chapter 6, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And he who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And of all that God has given me, I will lose nothing. But I'll raise him up on the last day. Do you believe that this morning? That those whom God calls, he saves and he glorifies. He'll lead you home. Thirdly, or fourthly, in verse 3, I'll make you a great nation. Not only does he remind him of his promises, he reminds him of his purposes. It's, it's so powerful. God is going to take this nation. He's going to move them out of Canaan. He's going to move them down to Egypt. He's going to put them in the land of Goshen. He's going to completely separate them from the Egyptians. Why? Because the Egyptians, as we're going to learn, they don't like shepherds. So he's going to put them over here in Goshen with Egyptian protection around them in the most fertile soil, all of Egypt, and he's going to use it as an incubator to grow this nation into a powerful nation that he will one day draw out of here and make a huge impact in the world through them. 
Does Jacob understand all that right there? Nah. He just says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have to trust me. And some of you right now are going through for fearful situations and you're wondering how in the world could God ever use this for his glory? And I'm here to tell you, God has purposes and plans that are bigger than what you can see or understand. And he's probably not going to let you in on the details. You're just going to have to trust him and be faithful today. But I can guarantee you, you may not be able to see it now and you may not understand it, but God is working something bigger than you can possibly understand. You trust him. And then, finally, fifthly, verse 5, I will go down with you. He reminds Jacob of his presence. You know, when we find ourselves in a place of fear, there are no more comforting words in all the world than to hear God say, I'm with you. You know, faith knows this. Um, just through different circumstances in our life when we've had to make decisions and we've prayed about certain things. I've told Faith this so many times. If I know that woman is with me, it's like, I don't care. I'll, I'll run over a mountain. When we're trying to make a decision and we're trying to do something and Faith says to me, is that what you think we're supposed to? Yeah. And she looks at me and says, I'm with you. I'm just going to tell you, ladies, for a man, there ain't nothing better. You're just like, oh, all right, here we go. But if that's good, how much more comforting and how much more confident should it be to us when God whispers down into our ears, I'm with you. The God of all creation, the Lord of heaven and earth, he's right there with you. He'll rarely take you out immediately from the circumstances. But he'll remind you, I'm with you in the midst of it. God says to Jacob, I'm with you. If you're here today and you do not have the confidence of knowing that God is with you, if you don't have the confident knowledge of knowing today that Christ is on your side, then you will always be living on eggshells. You're going to panic every time you face a bump in the road. It's going to be, oh no, here it goes, we're all going to die. Oh, no, you've been around these people? Oh, no, here it comes. We're all going to lose everything. And your life will be marked by fear and anxiety. But we as believers in Christ, listen, we're to be the ones who have stability. We're the ones who have peace and joy and confidence, not because we don't face storms, not because we don't face fearful situations, but because we abide in the Savior. And we know that he is with us, and he's bigger than whatever we fear. And so Jacob and in verses 5 through 7, he moves forward. This is beautiful. And I, I think if Jacob were honest with you, he would still tell us that he is still fearful. But he's got more reasons now to be confident than he does to have to be afraid. That's us as believers. It's not that we just move forward in life without any fear whatsoever. It's me, it just as believers, we got more reasons to be confident than we do to have to be afraid. And we move forward. We put one foot in front of the other. We keep moving forward. And what makes the difference in Jacob's life is not what he doesn't know, because there's a lot of things he doesn't know. It's not what he does know, and it's not what he doesn't know. It's who he knows that makes all the difference. He knows God, and God knows him personally. And he knows that God has made promises. And he knows that God is working out purposes that will not be stopped. And he knows that God is with him. And because of that, he's able to take a step forward. In this world, you are going to face 
trouble. Jesus told us that. In this world, you're going to face fearful situations that you cannot avoid. And sometimes Christ will lead you into fearful situations. He will intentionally, listen to me, he will intentionally sometimes lead you into what are incredibly frightening circumstances. He does it right here with Jacob. He did it with the disciples in Mark chapter 4. And the only way you're going to be able to stand up underneath the fears of life is through the confident knowledge of knowing that Jesus is with me, he loves me, he called me, he saved me, and he'll lead me home. And I want to be honest with you this morning. I have fears. I worry about a lot of things. I tend to be, you can ask my wife, I tend to be a worrier. I come by it honest, inherited it from my mama. Long line of worriers. But let me tell you one thing I do not worry about. And that's where I'm going to spend eternity. I'm not worried about that. And the one thing I cannot understand is how anybody can navigate this fearful world without Jesus. You ever said that? You're going through something in your life that's fearful and scary and difficult, and the thought goes through your mind because the only thing you have is Jesus in some of those moments. And you wonder, how does anybody do this without Christ? Thomas Dorsey, an African-American hymn writer, incredibly gifted and talented. In the early 1900s, he was going to sing and play at a, at a revival in St. Louis. He lived in Chicago. And his wife, Nettie, was about to give birth to their first son. And he, he didn't really want to go to the revival because he knew his wife's about to give birth. But his wife, Nettie, said, Thomas, go on. You need to go. You need to be used by the Lord. I think this is an important revival. So... Reluctantly, he left. He drove his car by himself all the way to St. Louis. And that first night of the revival services, he's still on the stage, and he receives a note from a young individual. And the note tells him, your wife passed away giving birth to your son this afternoon. And he just, he just heartbroken. And uh, he couldn't go on, and... He needed to go home. He couldn't drive himself. He asked a friend, would you drive me home? I'm in no condition to drive. A friend drove him all the way back to Chicago. He immediately went to the hospital and he saw what he thought was a, a healthy boy. But then later that night, his son passed away too. At that moment, he said he was just overcome with grief. Literally didn't know if he's going to be able to take another breath. His world was gone. Didn't sleep much that night at all, probably. But this friend who had drove him stuck with him. The next morning, this friend said, let's just go take a walk. And they took a walk around a college campus that was familiar to them. And they eventually found themselves in the choir room that Thomas was very familiar with. And there Thomas, he sat at a piano and he did what, what Thomas did. He just started playing. 
and he played a melody that was very familiar to him, but words just began to come out of him as he thought about a particular verse. Psalm 41.13 says this, The Lord your God will hold your right hand. And he said, just in the midst of pain and hopelessness, he began to sing these words. They just flowed out of him. In fact, he was saying, blessed Lord. And his friend said to him, I think it would sound better if you said precious Lord. So he wrote, precious Lord. Take my hand. Lead me on. Help me stand. I am tired. I am weak. I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. And the reason we've been running through Genesis and the reason I wanted to just stop at these seven verses is because I've talked with so many of you and I've prayed with many of you. And some of you, you don't know if you can take another step. Some of you have been served divorce papers. I know because I've talked with you. And it's inexplicable. Some of you have received health diagnoses that are scary. Some of you have lost children and lost a pregnancy, and it's not the first time. And you don't know if you can go on. And I'm just telling you today, Take his hand. Reach out and grab the invisible hand of God. And you may not get all the answers. And you may not understand why. But I promise you this, he'll lead you home. He led Jacob home. He'll lead you home. Let's pray. Father, we... We come before you today as very weak individuals, and we're grateful, God, that you know this. You know everything about us. You know that we are sinful. You know that we are broken. You know that we struggle, and you know that it doesn't take much, and we get scared. And God, I just pray for those this morning that are in the midst of some very frightening circumstances, unexplainable unforeseen and they don't know how they can carry on they don't know how they can take another step I wonder how difficult that first step past Beersheba must have been for Jacob stepping into the unknown leaving behind a world that seems so blessed and comfortable to go to something better that you had for him and God, I know there's some today that don't know how they can take the next step. And I pray, Lord, today you would come to them as they run to you just like you did with Jacob and you would whisper into their ear today, 
their personal name. Right now, Lord, I pray that they would hear their name being called by you, the God of all creation. And you would say to them, I am God. I'm bigger than what you fear. I'm greater than what you can understand. I love you. I have made promises to you. I have purposes that will not be stopped. And I will be with you. And I pray the encouragement that comes by the Spirit of God into our daily lives would enable them to take another step forward. I pray that they would abide in you. They'd pray that you'd give them the strength just to get up tomorrow morning. The strength to go eat breakfast. And then I pray that they would hit their knees again and pray that you'd give them the strength to go to work or whatever else they got to do. And then they'd pray that you'd lead them to lunch. God, I just pray that they would abide in your presence and you would strengthen them moment by moment and hour by hour and day by day. And slowly but surely, they'd begin to see the greater purposes and the plans that you have for them. God, for those that might be here today that don't know you, they're in the midst of a frightening circumstance and they don't know where to turn. I pray today in the midst of their circumstance they would see how weak, how fragile, and how sinful they really are. They can't save themselves and on their own they can't get through. And I pray that you would use this circumstance to draw their attention to your son Jesus who died on the cross for their sins. To demonstrate his love and I pray that they would trust in him today and they'd find forgiveness and a friendship that's unlike anything in this world. Their eternal father who knows them by name and they'd have a relationship with you through faith in Christ and you would strengthen them to carry forward knowing that you've saved them, you've called them and you'll lead them home. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your kindness towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.